Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our webinar and our CPG management skills. We're delighted to bring to you this November, as we have traditionally done for many Novembers. We have two speakers today. Our keynote speaker uh, is Sean Weefer, and Sean is a uh, leading uh, consultant. And he is going to speak to us today on engaging stakeholders and clients with influence. So not just engaging them, but engaging them uh, with uh, influence. And Sean's background is in leadership and sales enablement. So his journey has sort of been from sales to beyond sales. And sometimes I think, in fact, that maybe all leadership is sales in, to one extent, uh, because you're selling your vision or version of the world, uh, be that Donald Trump's or Joe Biden's or somewhere in between. Um, but Sean uh, will uh, hopefully engage you in terms of how you can move uh, from someone who just engages with your stakeholders to engaging and influencing them. But before Sean speaks to us, um, my partner, Liz Ryan, who's one of our employment law partners, is just going to speak briefly to uh, a gender parity survey uh, that we did amongst in-house counsel. Uh, it's obviously a very topical issue now because of the gender pay gap legislation that's been brought out. Um, and it's always, I think, a topical issue because people are always interested uh, in uh, gender parity and related issues. So Liz is going to uh, uh, present the survey findings, uh, and then uh, we'll move to Sean. So I see now that we've hit 447. Uh, so I think time to hand over to Liz. Thank you. Thank you, Declan. And welcome everybody to our session this morning. We thought we'd take the opportunity of running through quite quickly. I think I have sort of eight minutes or so, the output of a survey which Mason Hazen Kern carried out for the fifth year in a row recently. Uh, it's a survey of in-house counsel, and really the purpose of the survey is to um, ask questions about issues which are relevant to in-house counsel. Um, we had 98 people who responded to the survey, and the survey shows up some very interesting results. I suppose, um, to try to encapsulate it, and we'll go through the figures in a minute, um, we can see that there continues to be underrepresentation of females at senior levels in organizations. And there seems to be evidence being returned to us that females are continuing to grapple with work and caring responsibilities. And th there are trends which we've identified previously that are continuing, but it does seem that this year, 2022 post COVID, there's a slight regression in terms of the representation of females in the workplace. So Sinead, can I ask you just to move to the next slide? Thank you. Okay, so very quickly, um, this year in 2022, the reported number of female CEOs has declined from 23% in 2021 to 18% this year. So that's an interesting uh, decline, an interesting stat. Sinead, you might move on, please. In terms of females in senior leadership roles, the statistic which is probably most interesting in this graph is that in 2021, 43% of respondents said that the percentage of females at senior levels in organizations um, was in the 30 to 50 uh, percentage category. You can see it's the second block on your table there. 
However, this fell um, uh, from 2021 to 2022. So it reduced from 43% to 28% of females in, in senior leadership role in that category between um, 30 and 50% uh, percent of senior managers being female. Can we do, just might move on, please? Um, in terms of non-executive directors, um, the, the stats did improve slightly. You can see there in the middle of this table um, that uh, we now have a move from 3% um, of uh, NEDs who are uh, more than 50% uh, of, of board members to 6%. So that's that's quite a good increase. Um, and obviously, um, we'll talk a little bit later about the European Directive in terms of um, female participation on boards, but the non-executive director position has improved slightly. The directive that I spoke about is the Women on Boards Directive, and the objective of that directive is to ensure that on any board, at least 40% of the non-executive director posts were occupied by underrepresented, in this case, female sex. So there was a broad level of support for that directive at 79%. In terms of the, the uh, gender gap, um, so what we're really talking about in this slide is not, is not the gender pay gap that we will speak about in a minute. It really is about equal pay. So if you identify as a female in your current role, do you believe you're paid less than males in the same or similar roles? As you are undoubtedly aware, where a male and a female are doing the same job, they are entitled to equal pay um, for that job. And 36% of the respondents believed um, that uh, th there was there was an equal pay gap in employment between males and females doing the same work, but that um, somewhat hopefully is down from a forty percent perception of the gap uh, which we had in twenty twenty one. And now speaking about gender pay gap, so as many of you will be aware, by December of this year, if you're an employer with two hundred and fifty or more employees your employer is obliged to publish a gender pay gap. Gender pay gap reporting is not aimed at looking at equal pay. It is instead aimed at looking at representation of females in the workplace and um, across all salary levels. And um, in, in relation to this particular slide, you can see that 49% um, of those surveyed agree that there will be a gap when their employer reports out on pay across their whole organization. Um, so that is an interesting figure. It's slightly down from last year's figure, but I suppose um, we'll, we'll see the proof in the pudding when the reports uh, start to be published in December of this year. 250 employees this year, but it will go down to uh, an obligation on employers with 50 or more employees by 2025. So in terms of the gender pay gap in your industry and what are the causes of that gap? Well, 61% of respondents felt that the lack of females at a senior level um, was the main reason why there was a gender pay gap, because obviously that you would construe that females at a senior level are typically paid more uh, than females at less senior levels. And the, the, this was seen to be the main reason as to why there would be a gap in particular organizations. That reason was followed by uh, the, the time that females take out of the workforce on protective leave, such as maternity, parental, carers leave, etc. And in terms of 
steps which employers might take to reduce the gender pay gap. Um, the predominant reason that was given to us was that there should be greater internal pay transparency, uh, followed by government legislation, followed by organizations to pledge that they will place more females in senior roles, whether that's by way of a, a quota or a pledge, but pledge is the wording that we used in the survey. So in terms of measures that employers should consider to support females, we asked a couple of questions and the responses are there. But as you can see, the greatest support that females have sought is um, assistance with balancing family and caring responsibilities, followed by reintegration to the workforce following periods of uh, protective leave. So no, no great surprises there. That would be indicative of the trend that we've seen before. So in terms of challenges uh, that, that females are experiencing in the workplace, um, one of the feedback, uh, pieces of feedback that we received was really that um, the, uh, a great challenge for females is that they want greater equality at home and not just in work. And a good example of that would be where there's a mandatory provision to share, for example, maternity leave between males and females. Um, so it, that was an interesting comment, but I think it's indicative of a trend that we're seeing going through this survey, that in terms of the reasons for any lack of, of progression um, by females in the workplace, um, there seems to be very strong support for legislative interventions, um, but also there appears to be a, a, a trend also or feedback that when gender pay gap reporting is in place, that it will shine a light maybe on some of the structural uh, imbalances between males and females in the workplace. So that's the survey in a nutshell, a, a quite a quick run through it there. But as Declan said at the top, you will be receiving a copy of a survey report as a follow-up from this seminar today. So thank you for your time. And I'm now going to pass you over to Sean. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth, and good morning. Um, if I can just share my screen with you now to take you through the presentation we're going to deliver now. Um, as Declan said earlier, my job is uh, in the area of leadership and sales enablement. And really what we're talking about there is the capacity of working with uh, technical leaders or subject matter experts as an ability to help them be more effective in terms of how they influence and engage with their key stakeholders, both internally and externally. We often find that people who are subject matter experts uh, are extremely good at their technical knowledge, extremely good at their subject matter information, but the challenge they have is sometimes in how they deploy that information in an effective manner and how they project their value and, and, and gain greater recognition with their key stakeholders. So what I want to do in the next few minutes that I have with you is talk about engaging clients and stakeholders with influence. And the essence of that is being able to use more effective questioning techniques and to be able to use more effective languaging when we're engaging with different kinds of people. As Declan said earlier, you'll also get an ebook of mine on advanced questioning and influencing skills, which will come with the rest of the collateral next week. But in the next uh, 30 minutes or so, what I'd like to do is really share with you some ideas about how you might use questions and advanced uh, language 
more effectively in terms of engaging with your stakeholders so you have greater influence working with them, be they team members, be they peers, be they board members, or indeed be they people in the wider industry or the wider marketplace. So let's take a look at why questions themselves are of value. One of the most important things about questions and why we should be really successfully using questions and elegant at using questions is to successfully capture and hold people's attention. The single biggest challenge we face today when we're working as leaders is the ability to capture and hold people's attention. Now, apparently there was some research done a number of years ago that says that human beings' attention span has been diminishing regularly over the last decade or so, to where it now exists as something like 85 seconds. So in conclusion, I'd just like to say thanks very much for joining the webinar this morning. <laughs> no, but seriously, that's actually not the case. I mean, I sat through uh, the Batman movie a month or so ago with my son for three hours. If we're interested in something, we will pay attention. The issue in today's world is not lack of attention or ability to not pay attention. The issue is increased distraction. And so when you have a situation where there's more reasons why people are distracted, the level and the pace at which they're working with, the way their attention shifts so quickly, we have to find a way in which to elegantly capture, hold, and engage that attention. And the most powerful way to do that is always with effective questions. The beauty about a question is that when you ask a question, the way the brain is wired is that it has to consider what's being asked. In other words, an image, if you like, all immediately pops up into a person said, and whether they like it or not, they have to consider what's being said. So for example, if I was to say something completely random to you, for example, can you imagine a white cat? Can you imagine a white cat with a little red necklace? Many of you are now picturing the white cat. You cannot not see the white cat because as soon as I ask a question, I have captured your brain's attention. I own that real estate between your ears now. So questions are a powerful way, not just to capture people's attention, but to position an idea to suggest something that they might want to consider as a means of influencing their behaviors. So questions, first and foremost, are incredibly powerful when it comes to capturing and holding people's attention. Second reason why they're really, really useful is to ensure shared ownership and high levels of agreement to your proposals or your solutions. One of the things that we know about modern leadership is that leadership is less about command and control today. In other words, I have the expertise and I will tell you what to do, and far more about how I engage my team around me, my stakeholders around me, gather information and synergize that information in a way where everybody feels that they've contributed and they have some sense of ownership of the final solution. The more your team or the more your peers and the more your board has in terms of a feeling that they have contributed, that they have co-created, whatever the solution or proposal you're working on is, the more likely you are to get their agreement to move forward and the less objections or pushback or resistance you will find. So questions are also incredibly powerful when it comes to bringing people together, to synergizing and to creating more than would ordinarily happen if it was just a single person working on it. Bringing a group of minds together to find even more and better solutions is what happens when someone's effective at using questions in a facilitative manner as a leader. The third reason is to more successfully influence meeting outcomes. The key thing about questions is to understand that whoever asks the question is the person who's actually controlling the meeting. 
So you may not be the chair of the meeting, you may not be the person who's managing the agenda, but if you immediately want to change the attention or the focus or direction of a meeting, all you have to do is ask a question. As soon as you ask a question, everybody in that room that's sitting there listening to you around that table will automatically consider the question that you've answered. At that point, you have shifted their attention and you are now the person who's dictating the direction of the meeting itself. Now, so questions have an enormous amount of value for us in leadership positions because of this ability to capture attention, to create the shared and co-creative collaborative engagement of leadership, which is so important in today's world, and also the ability to direct or to manage to influence the outcomes of meetings without necessarily being the person who called the meeting or makes that meeting happen. So this is why questions are important. So what I wanna do is I wanna share with you maybe a couple of outcomes that I want out of this really short presentation that you'll be able to walk away with and instantly apply when you leave this webinar this morning. So in terms of session outcomes, the first thing I want to do is talk to you about forced teaming and influential language. Now, forced teaming is a psychological term. I'll explain what that means in just a moment. And influential language, or sometimes what we call soft language, is language that makes our proposals, our suggestions, our ideas, or our questions seem much softer. Um, by that, I mean sometimes there'll be times when you want to ask or need to ask people you know, a challenging question. You need to ask them to do something for you that maybe they don't want to do. You might want to ask for their support when they might not willingly uh, be willing to give that to you initially. So how we frame those questions and the language we use in framing those questions or suggestions is really, really important. And so using influential language, the purpose behind that is to minimize the perceived threat in any request that we make. And that's really, really important. If we want to get people involved and working with us, we must minimize any perceived threat in the request. And so when I talk to you about influential language, it'll show you how to remove that from your language and get more engagement from your stakeholders. Second outcome I want to take a look at is to explore some key influential questions. So there are certain questions. There are specific types of questions have specific outcomes when you ask them in relation to another person. Uh, for example, there are open questions and closed questions. There are state and stall questions, answer assist questions, exploratory questions, uh, double bind and preferential questions. Any professional communicator will tell you that there is a series of questions that we can use when we're having a conversation that allows you to influence the outcome of that conversation. What I wanna share with you is just a couple of those questions this morning that once you become conscious of them, hopefully you'll see them for what they are, which is linguistic tools to enhance the level of influence and engagement that you get from other people. The other element that I want you to take a look at this morning is how to handle objections to your proposals or just simply pushback. So there are times when you want maybe your team members to do something for you or a team member to do something for you. You might want a peer, you might want a member of the board, you might want a colleague to do something for you, and they're not immediately willing to do that. There's reasons why they're pushing back. They, they're, they're, they're trying to avoid taking responsibility for it. Or maybe they just flat out say no. No, they're not going to do it. That's a challenging situation for any leader. How do I handle someone who's just literally said no to, who's turned me down? 
So what I want to do this morning as well is share with you a means by which you can handle a situation where people are pushing back against your proposals. Maybe they're objecting to what you're proposing or asking them to do, or maybe they've just flat out said, no, they're not going to do it for you. So I'm going to give you some ideas about how to handle that as well. So what you'll have when we're done is you'll understand what force teaming is and why it's useful. You'll understand what soft or influential language is and how to use it. You'll understand a couple of key influential questions you can use starting today, and you'll understand how to be more successful in handling pushback or objections to your proposals, even to the extent to where someone says no to you, or they flat out refuse to do something for you. So let's begin with that. So advanced questioning influencing, the first thing we will look at is this concept of forced teaming. Now, forced teaming is a psychological term, which simply means that as soon as we use certain kinds of words, the person we're speaking to automatically assumes that we're now working together. We're working in a collaborative way. We're working as a team. And it's actually the simplest of language. Many of you use it every day, but you may not have been aware of its impact. And that is whenever we use the words we or us, we automatically move from adversarial, potentially I and you, to a collaborative synergistic state between ourselves and the person we're working with. There is a natural tendency in the other person's brain to take on board the idea that we are now working together to find a, a resolution or a solution to whatever it is that we're talking about. So there's a very simple little formula that works with that that I share with a lot of teams that I work with, and it's this. We for facilitation. So we would basically use the words we and us when we're trying to establish ground rules, when we're working out what the actual challenge is, when we're looking at a potential solution. We would always use we to facilitate that or us to facilitate that to give the impression that we're working together as a team and to collaborate, to synergize, to engage the other person or persons as fully as possible in the meeting. Now, the only challenge with that is that there will come a time when a decision will need to be made. Either you will need to make a decision at the end of the meeting or probably somebody else needs to make a decision at the end of the meeting. So we can't say something like, so when are we gonna make this decision? At that point, what we have to do when we're looking to get an outcome from the meeting, we need to hand back to the other person and use the word I or you at that point in time. So the, the, the simple rule as follows will be we for facilitation, when we're working it out, you for implementation. So whenever we want something implemented as a result of that discussion, we now hand the ownership back to the other person. And the way we do that would be something like, so when would you be able to make that decision? When would you be comfortable to get the documentation finished? When would you expect to have the proposal completed? When do you think you might have the presentation ready? So it's we for when we're working things out, we or us, and you when we need to hand it back to somebody else to ensure that an action is taken as a result of the outcome. And that's simply what forced teaming means. It means using language that brings us together and then allows us to assign information effectively. This will be particularly successful if you were doing a feedback session, if you were doing a coaching session, if you were doing uh, a delegation session with any one of the members of your team or a colleague. Next thing we wanna look at is this concept of soft or influential language. And this language, you can see it on the screen, is if, suppose, maybe, perhaps, might, might, and would. So if, suppose, maybe, perhaps, might, and would. As soon as you throw that kind of language into your conversational structure, 
automatically it decreases levels of perceived threat. It encourages more engagement. If we were to get this done, how might you see that happening? Right. So if we were to get this done, how might you see this happening? Or maybe there's something we should consider now. Perhaps it's useful to look at it from this perspective. I mean, just suppose we did. How valuable would that be? So you can even hear in my own language, it's very plausible. It's very engaging, but it's not in any way perceived as threatening. So this is where this language, if or if we were to consider this, how useful might that be? I mean, maybe we should consider this. Perhaps this is something worth considering, that it, it, it doesn't come across in any way as directive. It doesn't come across in any way as confrontational. And as a result, you're more likely to get engagement from people when you become more comfortable with using this idea of soft language. So those words, again, are very specific. And as you can see, they're on the screen. It's if, suppose, maybe, perhaps, might, and would. Would this be something worth considering? Very powerful question, very likely, likely to get engagement from another person that you're talking to. The third element here is using tone of voice to influence responses from people. So there are two primary types of tone. Uh, typically, when your voice goes up at the end of a sentence, it's called a questioning tone. Problem is you can't keep going up all the time. Otherwise, it sounds like you haven't a clue what you're talking about. So seriously, in terms of questions, what happens is when your tone goes up at the end of a sentence, it sounds like a question. And that tone is useful in a meeting because if you use a questioning tone, it encourages people to engage. Is everybody happy with that? Shall we move on? Those tones encourage people to engage. You're allowing them space to communicate with you. You're encouraging conversation. You're encouraging engagement. And that's called a questioning tonality. So whenever you go up at the end of a sentence, it's called a questioning tonality. And that's how it's positioned. Now, the other primary tone, which can be very, very useful when you're managing and influencing stakeholders, particularly in one-on-one -on -one or one-to-many meeting situations, is the opposite of the questioning tone. And the opposite of the questioning tone is called a command tone. Now, the way a command tone works, it goes down at the end of the sentence. So when, you're, when your tone drops at the end of a sentence, it's literally cutting off any further conversation. It's not encouraging any further engagement. It's not asking a question. It's not making space for facilitation. It's just ending that point and then moving on in the conversation. So an example of that would be, everybody happy? Good. Let's move on. Everybody happy? Good, let's move on. So let's move on encourages engagement. It's a questioning tone, but let's move on is a command tone. And typically the way the other people's brains will work is that that's an end to that conversation. It hasn't encouraged any further engagement and that allows you to move on from that particular subject onto the next stage of the conversation itself. So these things around understanding language this we uh, we for facilitation, you for implementation, using language like if, suppose, maybe, perhaps, might, and would can powerfully uh, uh, develop your language and your influence on people by being aware of the psychological impact they have on people. And then also the use of tone where it's appropriate. Are we happy to move on versus let's move on? And that said, let's move on. So let me share with you a couple of influential questions 
questions that would be valuable to understand in your everyday conversation. Now, one of the things I should say, because it is a question that comes up when I run workshops like these, is this seems very obvious. Uh, surely they know that, you know, you're doing this kind of thing. The reality is it's obvious because this, if you will, is a very short learning experience. And in a learning experience, I have to make you conscious of things. Hence, I'm being very obvious about when I talk about these things. But in a normal conversation, you're not going to hear somebody talking about, well, if we were to look at that, I mean, how might that work for you? Would that be something worth considering? Are you okay with that? Okay, let's move on. So that's a much more natural expression of a conversational uh, speech or a conversational engagement. And you can even hear that seems that it's very soft. It's very engaging. And people are very likely to agree or to be positively disposed towards working with me by working with that kind of language. So yes, while I'm making it very obvious because we're learning something here, when you start to use this in conversation, you won't find that it's very obvious at all. Now, the other point I want to make, which is something that comes up from time to time is, well, is this not quite manipulative? And I think that's a really good question. It's, it's something worth considering. There's a massive difference between manipulation and influence. Manipulation is where I use tools such as language or words or questions, for example, as a means of getting something that I want, but not for the benefit of the other person. That's not successful leadership. All successful leadership, and actually similar to something Declan said earlier, leadership and sales being two sides of the same coin because they're both focused on service to others. So as leaders, we're focused on being of service to our internal stakeholders because they execute what needs to be done for the business to survive and thrive. And then salespeople or business development people have to influence or engage with external and be of service to external stakeholders in order to drive the revenue to fund the organization. And actually, the word selling is actually rooted in the word to be of service. So leadership and service, leadership and sales, excuse me, are actually the, exactly the same thing. They're just contextualized differently. So the difference then between manipulation and influence is manipulation is I get something which you don't. That's only ever going to happen once. Okay. But in influencing, in persuading, if you will, it's a win-win situation. So I only win as a leader when my team member or my colleague or my board, or whoever I'm working with, whoever the stakeholder happens to win, happen to be, gets something from our interaction. There's a personal value to them, a benefit from engaging with me. And therefore, they're more likely to work with me. They're more likely to give me their support. They're more likely to lend me their influence. And then I win because they have won. That's effective influence. So win loses manipulation, not what's applicable in, in, in modern leadership. Modern leadership has moved very much from this expertise, authority-based command and control. I'm the expert. I need to tell you what to do to a situation where it's now more service-based, based on influence and rapport and trust and engagement and collaboration and synergy. And that's why questions become so important. So it's moved from a very manipulative model to a very strong, uh, supportive and synergistic model. So that said, let's use some of the questions. Number one, open and closed questions. So closed questions are questions that simply get you a yes or a no answer. That's it. So you simply want to confirm or you want to deny a situation. Is that something you're going to do? Yes or no? Did you do that? Yes or no? Are you going to do that? Yes or no? They're simply used for confirmation or denial. So did, is, are, these are all classic sort of uh, closed 
questions because it's not opening the conversation. It's not encouraging people to share information with us. It's simply giving us a confirmation or a denial. And that's why they're called closed questions. Now, open questions are a very different beast altogether. Their job is to encourage the other person to engage with us. Now, when we use open questions, we use them for two purposes, to elicit information or to make suggestions. So we would use open questions to elicit information or to make suggestions. Now, the way I remember, there are six open questions. The way I personally remember them is there was an English writer called Rudyard Kipling. And he said that I have six honest serving men and they serve me true. Their names were how, what, why, where, when, and who. How, what, why, where, when, and who. And I suppose Kipling being the writer of the Jungle Book and the man who would be king and all those Victorian novels would have said that because when he used those words, he was able to gather the information that filled his stories. Now, in our case, we would use those open questions, as I said earlier, for the two purposes of making suggestions or gathering information. So it's how, what, why, where, when, and who. However, there is one caveat. There is one question there you need to be very careful about applying or using. And that question is the question, why? Now, it's a question we need to use, but the challenge is if you come straight out with a question like, well, why did you do it that way? Why didn't you do this? Why is this the case? You can even hear it in the tone of my voice. It comes across as quite blame orientated or accusing. And that can therefore be seen by someone who's working with us as uh, a threat. It could be seen as a means that by which rapport or trust is diminished in some way. And so we need to be very careful about when we use that word. Now, the way we use that word effectively is we use what's called a preframe. In other words, something that, that opens up the opportunity to use the word or to use the question why. And that preframe is typically something like, tell me, why did you do it that way? Or, you know, uh, can you explain to me why you did it from that perspective? Or, you know, something. So it's just something that goes in front of the question why. Or may I ask, why did you do it that way? In other words, we ask permission to ask the question why. So all the other questions, how, what, where, when, and who are perfect. They can be used exactly as they are. We just need to be a wee bit sensitive around the question why, because it can be seen as a blame or an, accusat an accusatory question. So we would preframe it by saying, may I ask, or tell me uh, why you did it that particular way. Now, one other thing about these open questions. In many cases, when you use an open question on its own, like for example, how many people need to be at the meeting or, where would you like to meet or when would you like to meet? You may notice that we tend to get quite abstract or ambiguous answers. They might say something like, oh, we need three or four people at the meeting or, um, you know, we could meet maybe next week or the week after. So if you just simply use the open questions on their own, how, what, why, where, when and who, you will tend to get sort of... Um, ambiguous responses. We cannot function with ambiguous responses as leaders. We need clarity. There can't be any assumptions. Uh, there can't be any ambiguity. So what we need to do is learn how to use those questions effectively. And the way we do that is by using the word that's on the screen, which is the word specifically. When you start using the word specifically with your open questions, the quality of the responses you get will be radically different than if you use it without the word specifically. For example, if I say how many people specifically will need to be at the meeting, 
And remember, I'm making a great emphasis on this. I'm making it aware for you to be conscious of it. You wouldn't do that in a normal conversation. So how many people specifically would need to be at the meeting? They'll say, we'll need three people, the CIO, the CTO, and the CFO. Very specific response. When specifically would you like to meet? How specifically would you like me to do this for you? By using the word specifically, and if nothing else comes out of this really short session with you, just learning to use the word specifically with open questions will radically enhance or change the quality of the answers that you get from people. You'll get really qualitative responses that we can work with successfully and comfortably with. So that's open and closed questions. Next question you might want to think about is a preferential or double bind question. And this comes down to decision-making psychology. Basically, modern, modern research indicates to us that if you're working with someone or you're making a proposal to someone or you're getting someone to come on board or you're suggesting something to them, if we give them four or more options, then what happens is the brain automatically goes into overwhelm. They go, oh, my God, that's too many choices. Uh, I need to go away and think about this. So what happens is they will not make a decision for you there and then. OK, so if you give four or more options to somebody to do something, they'll just kick the can down the road. They won't make a decision. They won't make any commitment. Typically, psychology indicates to us as well that if you give them people three options, like an option A, an option B and an option C, most people will tend to pick the middle option because it's not the most and it's not the least. So it tends to be the safest bet. So that's one way in which you can funnel people into making decisions. But the latest research indicates that we really don't want to give people more than two options when it comes to doing something. If you give people no more than two options, they're more likely to make a decision A or decision B, and we can move things ahead faster. Remember that it's not that attention spans have diminished, it's that distraction spans have increased. And so we, what we have to be is far more specific in our communication when we're working with people. Now, once you have an option A and an option B, it's very simple to use this preferential or double bind questions. Now, many of you may use this on a day-to-day -day basis. You're just not conscious of it. For example, how many of you said to somebody, you know, would you like to meet today or would you prefer to meet tomorrow? So what you're doing when you ask that question is it sounds like you're giving two options to people. And you are. And the options you're giving them are, would you like to meet today or would you prefer to meet tomorrow? But what you're not giving them an option over is not meeting. Because regardless of whether they choose today or whether they choose tomorrow, they've agreed to the meeting. And that's what we mean by a double bind situation. It doesn't matter which one they choose, either one will help us move the process forward. Hence, if we're in a position to say, well, look, this is project A, and then this is project B, which one you, would you prefer for us to proceed with? Then it doesn't matter which one they choose, but they've made a decision and allows us to move forward. And so that's typically what preferential or double bind questions are used for in terms of influencing meeting or influencing a person's decision-making. Third question you wanna think about, which can be very, very helpful. And it very, it doesn't even get heard in the conversation. It's called an exploratory question. And this question typically would be used, let's say you're in a meeting and someone says something to you and you, you may not quite catch it or they ask a question and you don't quite have the answer on the tip of your tongue. And as a result, you're sort of a little off balance. That happens from time to time. Or maybe somebody says something 
and you'd like to get more information on what they've just said, but they're not immediately forthcoming with that. This is where we would use this exploratory question. So if somebody asks me a question and I don't immediately have an answer to it, or I'm thrown a little by where the question has come from, my immediate response will be something like, that's interesting. How do you mean? Or if somebody finishes a, a, a paragraph, they've had a conversation with me say, okay, that's interesting. How do you mean? I would say, how do you mean? Or if they say something to me and I haven't quite caught it, I'd say, how do you mean? Now, what happens in those situations is that the word how encourages the people to go back and reconsider what they've just said. And in many cases, what they will do is they will either answer the question they originally asked because they asked it without thinking about it, or they will reframe, in other words, put in different language, the words that they said to make it easier for us to understand. So we allow ourselves to continue. We get back on balance again, and we're able to continue with the conversation. Now, many of you will notice that that question is not grammatically correct. If the question was grammatically correct, we would say, what do you mean? But the problem is, if you say, what do you mean to somebody, they're very likely to say, well, what I just said, what happens? Are you deaf? Did you not hear me? Okay. But using the word how is like a little psychological trigger that forces a person to go internal, to internalize the question, to consider what they've said, and then either answer it for themselves because they didn't consider it enough before, or to reframe the language in a way that's easier for us to understand and therefore continue with the meeting. The fourth question I want to share with you is uh, called an answer assist question. Now, I think you might like this one because this is what happens when someone says, I don't know. Uh, so you've asked a question and the person says to you, I don't know. I, I have no idea what to do. Um, and then sometimes we can be stuck about how we move forward with that. What do we do? How, how do we address this issue? Well, the way you address that issue is with this particular type of question. And it is three parts to it. Um, actually, before I get into that, there's probably three reasons why people say I don't know to us. The first reason is genuinely they don't know, but they're looking for a way forward. So they're open to being to further engagement. So they don't know, but they're interested in moving forward. So they're open to a further engagement. The second reason people say I don't know is often because they kind of have an idea, like they're thinking about something but they're not really sure if they can share it with you yet because they're not sure if you might critique it or criticize it in some way, right? So what's really important there is that we get them comfortable enough to share what it is that they have because that's the ideal situation. If they share with us what they have, then what we're able to do is um, work with them to co-create, to collaborate, to synergize, to come up with a solution. And then they're 100% on board and we can move forward. The third reason that someone might say, I don't know, is because they don't want to share with you that they have an alternate agenda. And sometimes we need to discover what that agenda is. So if somebody says, I don't know, how do we deal with that? The first thing we do is we say, um, we affirm. So we tell them it's okay not to know. Then we delete the fact that it's okay not to know. And then we ask the question. So it work, would work something like this. Let's say I'm speaking to Declan and I ask Declan a question and Declan says, I don't know. I would say, that's fair enough, Declan. I appreciate that. Not always easy to know the answer straight off. That's an affirmation. That's letting Declan know it's okay not to know. So if he doesn't know, he's feeling more relaxed. If he had something he was thinking about sharing, now he's willing to share it. And if he 
has been trying to block me when he thinks he's got away with it. But then I use the next word, which is the English language's greatest deleter, and that word is but. So I appreciate it's okay not to know, Declan. It's easy, you know, it's hard to do it straight off the top of your head like that. But that word but deletes everything that comes before it in the English language. Okay. And remembering to use it is very powerful because then what follows that is the request. And that's what you say, if you were to know, I mean, just suppose you knew, what would you say or what would you do? I appreciate it's not always easy to know, but just suppose you knew, if you were to know, listen to the soft, soft language, just suppose, or if you were. Now, typically what happens with that is if a person has information they were maybe not comfortable sharing with you, they now feel assured and they feel comfortable sharing with you, and then we can work together. We'd say, that's a great idea. Let's work with that. If someone genuinely didn't know, or if, been, if they have another agenda, they'll say, I don't know. In which case, what we'd say is, may I make a suggestion? Now we're back in control again. And the person who's genuinely looking for an answer will say, yeah, sure. And if a person's got another agenda, that's when it tends to get exposed. So you can see these are specific forms of questions which used in a conversation can get specific outcomes. Last part I wanna share with you is when you're dealing with pushback or objections. Uh, first of all, an objection is not a bad thing. It means the person's interested, but what they haven't worked out yet is the value to them about what you're proposing. So they're looking for more information. That's what's happening. Sometimes changing the type of communication is important. Some people are more visual than others, so they like graphs or images or video or photographs, images of some kind. Some people are more verbal, so you, maybe you haven't talked it out or maybe you haven't asked enough questions to allow them to talk. You know, and others are more analytical. So sometimes changing it into a written format can sometimes be another way of overcoming that objection. Really good to deal with the word specifically, as we mentioned before. So somebody says, well, I'm not comfortable with that. May I ask? Why specifically you're not comfortable with that? May I ask, pre-frame, why, question, specifically you're not comfortable with that right now is a great way to deal with that. So the word specifically can be a powerful way of dealing with that particular issue. I think the other thing about objections is they're an opportunity to request action. So if, if they say, well, you know, you can't, you can't get it done by next week, you can reverse that. And you say, well, if I could get it done for you, if, soft language, I could get it done for you by next week, would you be happy to agree to work with me on this? So you reverse the pushback or you reverse the piece of objection that they're working with, assuming that's a possibility. Um, last one I want to share with you is you get a no to your proposal, a no to your suggestion. Somebody turns you down, no. Let me be clear about this objection. The no is not the objection. The no is not the pushback. It's a cover for something deeper, which could be anything and everything and unique to that individual. So how do you address it? This is how you address it. You would say something like this. May I ask why specifically on this occasion you're saying no? To break that down in terms of what we've spoken about already, may I ask as a preframe, softening the question, why is the question we're asking specifically for the information on this occasion makes it time bound. So in other words, they might say yes the next time. Are you saying no? At that point, that is when you will gain the information you needed. The real reason behind why they're refusing your request at this point in time. 
So very briefly, a very quick overview or concept around using questions effectively. And now what I'd like to do is hand back. I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, I hope you enjoy the ebook that will be sent on to you. And now I'll hand back to Declan for Q&A. Many thanks, Sean. I'm uh, sitting here with this uh, vision in my mind of a white cat with a red ribbon whose voice keeps going up and up and up as they attempt to ask an engaging question. Um, so uh, very interesting and, and perhaps not uh, material that lawyers often uh, think about. So I see questions uh, coming into the Q&A uh, function. Uh, and hopefully you see them there as well. Um, we have some a very straightforward one here. If you don't know an answer to a question asked by a client, how would you suggest uh, responding? I think that's a great question. I think one of the most important things you do is you don't bluff your way through it. If you attempt to bluff your way through it or half answer it, they will see that in your body language. Because in body language and communication, there's a thing called congruence. It means that your body language tends to reject what your inner state is, how you're feeling. And if you're feeling uncertain, if you're feeling anxious in answering a question you're not comfortable answering, they that will be seen. They'll pick up on that. And automatically what will happen is the the, the client will start to match that behavior because now they're seeing something step into the conversation like anxiety, which their whole senses are geared towards threat protection will respond to. So the very best way to deal with it is if, if, if the client asks a question you can't answer, acknowledge the fact that it's a great question, but you don't have to respond. So I would say, Declan, that's a great question. Actually, I hadn't considered it in relation to this meeting, but if you like, I'll chase up um, I'll chase it up for you afterwards, and I'll email you and everybody else in, re in relation to the response. Would that be okay? The most important thing is don't try and answer a question you don't have an answer for. Acknowledge it as an excellent question from the person, so you're paying them a compliment, you're maintaining rapport, and then promise to follow up with a response and make sure everybody is CC'd on the mail who happens to be in the meeting. I enjoyed the psychological framework of your answer. Uh, of course, the lawyer in me would say, well, of course, if you don't know the answer, you say, I don't know the answer, because to do otherwise would simply be negligent and wrong. Um, <laughs> but it's quite an interesting framework. Um, so let me look at some other questions coming through. Um, So here's one. Uh, how do you deal with stakeholders who tend to hijack uh, a meeting with their own questions uh, and by and, and their objective to find holes in your advice? Uh, I, I, that's a really good that's a really good point. And actually, that kind of fits more in with presentations in terms of how you handle awkward participants. But a really good way to do it is to there's two ways you could do it. You can say, uh, look, Declan. I appreciate your questions, but we have a limited amount of time here. I'd like to get the presentation finished. Are you okay with that? So you could do that, right? Or you could say, Declan, that's a really good insight. May I ask you a question in return? And then you ask them a really difficult question that they have to reflect on, right? Like compute pi to the final decimal place or something, right? But they have to think about it. And then, and then you say to the rest of you, and while Declan's considering that, let's move on use your command tone to move the process forward. That's the carry solution of always answering a question with another question. Um, okay, here we have a uh, question here. Uh, 
Have you got different strategies for multicultural work environments? So that's obviously environments. And a lot of, of, of Irish people have this, where there's a mix of native and non-native English speakers. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, I, I would not project myself as a, a cross-cultural expert in any means, although I've worked with multicultural audiences all over the world. Um, I think really the only sort of uh, guidance I'll give around that is that the beauty about questions is that they encourage the other person to speak. It allows them to respond in their own in their own space and in their own time and explain where they're at. They're also incredibly inclusive. So, you know, in terms of leading a multicultural team, I would say to any leader or any professional, what's really key is that you, you are effective enough at asking questions and you're effective enough at active listening. So paraphrasing, repeating back what you think you've heard and understood, summarizing the conversation at the end and allowing the other person to express themselves fully. Um, way back in ancient Rome, I think it was Seneca said, I have two ears and one mouth, allow me to use it in that ratio. Um, and so really all I can say is, is to be even more facilitative in that situation than you might ordinarily be. Okay. There's a couple of questions with a sort of similar theme and, and that is around if you use the forced teaming strategy, uh, is there not a risk of immediate hostility or rejection on the basis that it's used too early or that it's transparent that you're, you're pushing out the we and everyone knows that it's not going to be we you're just going to dump this job on me after you you know have, have floated it out in this full false collaborative style of yours uh what do you do about that so is there a timing point <laughs> i like this false collaborative style well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the question <laughs> um well first of all if it's a, if it's a matter of delegation okay uh, which can be a big issue. First of all, I would never say we, first of all, because what I would do, first of all, as a leader, is I would have decided on who I wanted to delegate this thing to, but I'd also have given some consideration to that delegation. In other words, typically, I would only delegate something to a team member who's a subject matter expert, and therefore, I would recognize they're, maybe they're better than me at that, and I would indicate that fact. Two, it's a means by which they get more face time with other stakeholders, maybe which helps them with their particular brand. Or three, it's going to help them develop a skill that they themselves are going to lead and use in a leadership capacity down the line. So I would have thought about what I was going to delegate. That sort of situation that we're there for open up a conversation with them. Say, look, I'm interested in you looking at a couple of things I want you to take on board to run for me. Would you be comfortable looking at that? So that's definitely an I and a U type situation. If they agree to that, to the conversation, I say, look, these are some of the areas that we need to look at in terms of moving forward, and I'd like you to take control of them. I'd love to discuss with you maybe ways to do that. Are you okay with that? And then that's where you would use we and us as we're working stuff out and then hand it back to them. So what, do you, what are you going to be able to take on board first? What are you comfortable working with first? And that's how you would handle that situation in a delegation situation. Very good. Uh... Another question, an interesting one uh, for advice when you have engagement at a meeting uh, with some members of the meeting, but not with others. So these would be the meeting dynamics where you've been, you're either leading the meeting or you're called on to participate. And you can see that two or three people are engaged in listening, but then there are maybe one or two senior people, they're either looking off vacantly, even worse, playing with their phone. Uh, and you just know that uh, while you may have engagement from A and B, you're miles away from C and D. 
And again, this would be almost like in a presentation situation that if you're doing a presentation proposal, <clears throat> it's no longer a monologue, it's about a dialogue and it's about facilitating people. If I get a situation like that, what I do is I would actually, um, I, let's say there's five or six people in, in, in the group, in the presentation, in the, in the proposal meeting, whatever it is, I would say, you know what, I'd love to get everybody's perspective on this. So can I ask you guys just maybe to partner with the person beside you, discuss that and then give us some feedback. So I'd break them up into maybe just a pair of twos. And if they're senior people, have them talk to another senior person, right? And then say, okay, can I get your perspective on that, Declan? Um, you know, Natalie, may I get your perspective on that? And then just feed the room and feed, get the feedback back from the room. That's how you automatically and instantly engage them. They can't run away from that unless they choose not to continue with the meeting, which is probably not something they would be willing to do. Okay, great. Well, uh, we're coming up right on the hour. So while we have a few more questions in, I'm afraid uh, we're going to leave it there just to respect the timing. Um, I think we touched the 580s there at one stage in terms of participants. So uh, it's great uh, to see so many people tuning in. And I hope uh, you got something uh, both from Sean's presentation and from uh, Liz's exposition of the survey results. Just to flag, that was a survey of in-house counsel, and I think it was a 98 uh, response rate uh, survey. So that's actually a reasonably representative spread when you get that kind of, of, of buy-in. Uh, and just to recap, uh, so we will circulate an email which will have a recording uh, of this session. Uh, you'll get with that one of Sean's books uh, on advanced questioning and influencing skills. So more of the techniques which Sean has touched on uh, will be uh, set out uh, in, in the book. Uh, so hopefully some of the questions we didn't get to will, will be answered there. Uh, and uh, you'll get a copy of the survey. And lastly, but also very relevantly, uh, you will, I think by separate mail, also get your CPD cert. So thank you very much, everyone, for participating. And a special thanks uh, to Liz and Sean uh, for their uh, presentations. So thank you very much. Thank you.